right. Good evening, folks. Welcome to the mine. We're so glad to have you here tonight. Uh, we want to finish strong, so thank you for your attendance. Uh, we've got a month to go in the mine before we take a little bit of a break. Uh, just a couple of reminders. Uh, we're dealing with the passage on marriage tonight out of Ephesians 5. Next week, parents and children and their relationship as well as employee-employer relationships. And I know none of you have any problems there. So uh, that will be next week. And then uh, the following two weeks, May 6th and May 13th, the final two weeks of our semester, we're going to be looking at spiritual warfare out of Ephesians 6. How do we as Christians defend ourselves against the attacks of the devil? Uh, that's going to be some great weeks as well. So we hope we'll finish strong and have great attendance right through the semester. Don't forget we take a break from May 13th till July the 8th, but then on July 8th we will have a four-week summer Bible study in the book of 2 Timothy, and then our fall semester in the book of James will start up on Tuesday, August the 19th. All right. We want to worship the Lord tonight, so before we do, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us in a special way tonight, as He always is, because our God is faithful. Amen? Amen. And so He's here tonight. He's going to be with us. And uh, we're looking forward to our study tonight. But before we worship the Lord tonight, let's ask his blessing upon our time. God, thank you so much, uh, Lord, for the amazing Sunday that you gave us with Jim Caviezel. Uh, Lord, uh, we had so many people come to Christ on Sunday and so many people recommit themselves just through the power of his story and of his testimony. And we just pray you would be with him uh, as he continues to go around the country sharing his faith in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for uh, tonight. Thank you for this opportunity we have to freely come into this building, to open up our Bibles, to sing praises to you, to just be together and encourage each other. And we pray, Father, that tonight would be a, just a great encouragement to everyone who is here. May we leave here, Lord, just revived and refreshed by your Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ah, thank you. Great worship, as always. Thanks, guys, so much. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22 tonight, as we continue our study of the book of Ephesians. And uh, certainly the overarching theme of the book is if a church would allow God to define it, what would that church look like? And tonight we're going to see that that church would be made up of dynamic marriage relationships. And some of you may be saying, well, Jeff, this isn't for me because I'm not married. Yes, it is. Uh, because uh, even if you're here tonight and you're single, this passage certainly applies to all of us. And the principles, biblically, that we're going to learn tonight can be applied to many areas of our life, not just to the marriage relationship. So we believe that God has something for all of us tonight, whether you are married or not. But certainly, the specific application is that God is desiring for His people to be in dynamic, loving, living relationships with one another. Uh, and part of that is the marriage relationship, the closest of unions on a human level that any two humans will ever participate in. I want to begin, and I'm just going to read the passage, and then we're going to go back and just share a few thoughts that God has laid upon my heart these last couple of weeks as I have been studying this passage. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word, so that he may present the church to himself as glorious, not having a stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and takes care of it, just as Christ also does the church." For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am actually speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, 
Each one of you must also love his own wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. First of all, before we dive into this passage tonight, let's begin by just getting this principle right out there at the beginning. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, God commands all Christians to honor marriage. He says, honor marriage as an institution, as as a creation of God. And so I don't know exactly how that looks for each of us, how we could apply that to our lives. Obviously, if we're married, to me, one of the ways that I can honor marriage and the sanctity of marriage and the institution of marriage for me is by striving to be a godly husband for my wife and to be the husband that God wants me to be. But also, again, as Christians, whether we're married or not, there are different ways that we can honor the institution and sanctity of marriage, the creation of marriage in many different ways. Even through the political process and through us just moving in and out of our community and, and standing up for marriage and praying for marriages and, and encouraging marriages and all of that. So I don't know how that looks. I'm not going to Play the Holy Spirit in your lives, but God commands Christians in Hebrews 13, verse 4, to make sure that we live our lives honoring the institution of marriage. And that's why he takes so much time here in Ephesians to talk about the relationship between the husband and the wife. Also, before we get into verse 22 tonight, let's remember the context, because the context is very important when you study the Bible. The verses that precede the passage and come after the passage are very important to understanding the passage itself. And let's not forget what we looked at last week, which was the absolute necessity for us as Christians in order to fulfill our Christian responsibilities, we need to be filled with the Spirit of God. Remember uh, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. It's a command of God. It is something that is a present imperative in the Greek language, which means that it's a continual thing, that we don't just get filled with the Spirit once in our life, and it's good for our Christian life, that we are to allow the Spirit of God to influence us, to control us, to to basically take the lead in our lives all the time, throughout the day, every day, every month, every year. And so we need to keep that in mind as we move down to verse 22, because it's impossible For a husband and wife to glorify God in their marriage apart from both of them being filled with the Spirit at all times. In fact, that is why the Bible basically says, don't get married to an unbeliever. Because how can you as a believer who has the capacity to be filled with the Spirit and your spouse who does not have the capacity to be filled with the Spirit, how's that going to work? Because only one of you are going to have the capacity to have this energizing of God to be able to meet those responsibilities that are required in a marriage. And you as a, as a saved spouse cannot expect your unsaved spouse to meet those requirements. They cannot because they do not have the Spirit of God within them. They do not have the power of the Spirit behind them. They do not have the uh, Spirit encouraging them in that way. And so they can't obey Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. And therefore, it's going to be very difficult, if nigh impossible, for them to understand verses 22 through 31. Because they do not have the Spirit within them to help them to understand, grasp, and then empower them to do what God expects each husband and wife to do. Be filled with the Spirit. The other thing I'll say is this, that we can talk a lot about this whole thing of submission for the wife and the leadership of the home for the man, but I want to overarch it with this statement. What God, I think, is asking all of us to do, regardless of what our role is, whether it's in the home, in the church, in our community, in the world, whatever, is to accept our God-given role, and to do our very best in the role that God has called us to at this point. And if we keep fighting that role, if, if, if we 
if we do not accept that role and embrace that role, then God is going to say to us, you're going to have a lot of difficulty and you're going to have a lot of struggles because our God, the Bible teaches, is a God of order. And there is a reason why he said, I want things this way. Just all the way back even to the book of Genesis when he created the universe. The Bible clearly teaches there was chaos, but when God spoke the word, the word of God took the chaos that the world was in and brought order to it. And God wants to do the same thing in our lives and in our homes. He wants to speak into our lives, speak into our homes, and take the chaos that's going into our homes and bring order there. And one of the ways that order is brought to a home is when the husband and the wife, in this instance, are willing to accept the roles that God has for them. The word submit is not a word of inequality or inferiority at all. It's not like the wife in some way is any less than the husband when, the, when God asks her as the wife to submit. In fact, the word submit in the Greek language also speaks of something that is done very voluntarily and willingly. So that if you have a situation in a marriage where a husband is sort of like trying to force the wife to, it, to submit or hold it over her head and, and make her submit and always go around the house and, you know, you're supposed to submit to me. That's what the Bible says type of thing. That's not what Paul's talking about. Because that man, that husband, has no concept of what Paul's saying here. Because you'll notice the command of the wives to submit is not addressed to the husbands. It is addressed to the wives because it is something that a God-fearing, godly woman in a Christian marriage under the influence of the Holy Spirit will do voluntarily and willingly because she wants to accept her role in order for the home to function in an orderly way. And she understands, as Paul says in verse 22, that ultimately she's not submitting to her husband as much as she is submitting to the Lord and to his created order for the home, for church, for government, for anything. Anything that God tells us all. And all of us as Christians are all called to submit and place ourselves all under the authorities that God has placed over us for order's sake. For order's sake. And as I, I say to women all the time, you know, don't take this as any kind of inequality and inferiority. In fact, use Jesus Christ as your example. Jesus Christ, when he came to earth as the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, submitted himself to the leading of the Holy Spirit, submitted himself to the will of the Father. I mean, even go to the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's wrestling with the separation that's going to come between him and the Godhead. When he takes upon the sin of the world and he says, God the Father, if there could be any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And Christ submits himself under that authority. Even as God to show us and to give us that example and that model. So if somehow you as a wife or a woman feel inferior, that's coming either from within you or that's coming from somebody else, but that's not coming from God. God is championing you and just asking you to fulfill the role that he has given to you in order for the home unit to be orderly. And he's not laying that responsibility only on you, obviously. As he goes on, he's asking the husband, husband, You need to step up and accept your responsibility to be the leader of your home, especially the spiritual leader of your home. And there's many husbands, Christian husbands, who are not stepping up and taking that role and accepting that role. In fact, a lot of times very willingly because the wife seems to be the the spiritual uh, person in the home many times and and more spiritually sensitive and in tune to spiritual things, many times the husband just passively sits back and lets the the wife run with the spiritual leadership of the home. It's commendable, but that's not how God designed it. In fact, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Whenever Eve was out there having the conversation with the serpent, and Adam was there, but Adam was silent. Adam never said a word. Adam was passive. He was just letting Eve and the serpent have this conversation, and he didn't say a word. Can I tell you, that repeats itself throughout history, and that's why a lot of women scratch their heads, especially when they're thinking of their husbands and say, why don't men talk? (laughs) 
Why don't they communicate? Why are they so passive? I want a husband who's a leader. I want my husband to be the spiritual leader of the home. Because I understand from God's perspective that me being the spiritual leader of the home is not the way God designed the marriage to work. And so husbands also need to step up and take that leadership. And here's the cool thing, guys. Again, God doesn't ask us to be the spiritual leaders in our own power and strength. You and I be filled with the Spirit, and we will have all the energy, all the power, all the insight, all the understanding that we need day in and day out as we allow the Spirit of God to influence us in order to step up and be the leaders that God has called us to be. I will say this as well. Our willingness to obey God in one area affects our willingness to obey God in any other area. And that's why he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because God knows that if I'm, if I'm resisting God here, I'm probably going to resist God over here as well. If I'm willing to embrace and accept the role that he's called me to here, then later on down the road when he asks me to do something over here, I probably will be more willing to obey and follow what he says. And that's why our lives are intertwined. We cannot compartmentalize our Christian life because one area of our life is going to affect another. And if we're keeping back a certain area of our life and saying, God, you can have all the rooms in my life, in my house, except that one, that one will affect all others. Because our resistance there is going to also show up in some kind of resistance somewhere else. And that's why God then gives it the overarching thing that, guys, it's not like this is what you do for your husband or husband, this is what you're doing ultimately for your wife. Ultimately, you as a Christian husband and wife are following me and my lead and my wisdom on this thing. And by you showing that you're willing to follow me here, you're going to show a willingness to follow me somewhere else. Let's also remember this as we go on. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And let's remind ourselves, especially men of this principle, but all of us, because again, this is a principle that covers whether we're married or not. The biblical principle is the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. And yeah, it's a great privilege for, say, men to, to be given that headship, that responsibility of being the leader of the home. But gals, don't forget that we one day as men are going to stand before God and give an account, not just of my role as a husband and a father, but I'm going to give an overall account of the spiritual temperature and well-being of my home. That is not something that any woman is ever going to have to give an account for. You see, you as a wife, you as a woman, you will stand before God as a Christian woman and you will give an account for your role as a wife and your role as a mother, but God will never ask you to give an account for the overall well-being of the home. That responsibility is laid before men. And any man who is worth their salt and who has walked with God any length of time realizes that responsibility and hopefully takes it seriously. And again, doesn't allow that responsibility to overwhelm us, but we are encouraged by the fact that God will give us as men all the resources we need in order to step up and be the spiritual leaders that our wives, our children, our country, our churches need. We need strong marriages. And our example for both roles, as we've already talked a little bit about, is Christ. Because if you're a wife, you can use Christ as an example. Because when he came to earth, he laid aside the independent use of his godly attributes. And he followed the leading of the Holy Spirit and God the Father the whole time he was here. And he lived a life of submission and humility to the will of God. You read about the story about the time where the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. So all through the life of Jesus, you see that concept of submission. So again, a Christian wife can look to no further than Jesus himself and go, I've got a model, I've got an example of what submission is all about. And again, hopefully that will encourage you because you're looking to Christ as that example. So there's no way you should feel inferior 
to any men. There's no way you should feel unequal to any you know, uh, husband. You should feel the honor that Christ felt as God. And yet, he submitted himself. And husband, we have Christ also as an example. Notice again in verse 23. We are the head, but just as he himself is the savior of the body as well. And we can look to Christ and how Christ cares for his church, how Christ loves his church, his people, how he provides for them, shepherds them, protects them. And we can have Christ as this great example of what a loving spiritual leader and shepherd looks like. So no matter what role we're in, Christ can be the example for both. And notice, as the church, verse 24, submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. First of all, a couple things. I I don't have time to cover everything in this passage. We'd be here till next Tuesday, although that's not a bad idea. No, just teasing. This passage, like other passages, do not always cover the exceptions. So let's please remember that when we interpret Scripture and we begin to form how we believe about things, that we always take other Scriptures and we put them together to form the total package here. And yes, the Bible calls wives to submit to their husbands, but that, that there, there, is a, there are exceptions to that. Okay? If your husband asks you to do something illegal or immoral, you're not under God's obligation to follow the leadership. In other words, the implication here is that you would willingly, voluntarily do that because you're understanding at that moment that they're following the best they know how to follow what Christ is doing at that moment in their lives. And I'm not saying they're always going to be perfect, obviously. We as men and husbands make mistakes all the time. But there are exceptions to that. And, and I'll say this. I have never met a Christian wife yet who had any trouble placing themselves willingly and voluntarily under their husband when their husband loved them like Christ loved the church. I mean, when a wife knows that her husband loves her that much, he adores her, uh, that, that he is loving her like Christ loves us, she has no trouble placing herself under his leadership. The rub comes in whenever many times the husband is not loving her, his wife like Christ loved the church, and yet somehow he's holding that whole submission card over her head. And can I just say, from a guy to guys, guys, that doesn't work and that's not biblical. Because again, let's go back. The word submit is a word that is asking wives to voluntarily, willingly place themselves there for order's sake. It never asks the husband to try to push his wife into submission or make his wife submit. When it gets to that level in a marriage, that's not the biblical design. Notice verse 26. All of this is done to sanctify her, the church now, by cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. You see, at the end of verse 25 now, he's transitioned from marriage to this beautiful picture of Christ and the church and how Christ loved the church and gave himself for her and the sacrificial nature of Christ's love for the church. And God is also saying to husbands, husbands, if you truly sacrificially love your wives, wow, that's the way a marriage should be. And here's why Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. To sanctify her. Point. God has called the church and God has called marriages and God has called individual Christians to a much higher purpose. You see, you'll notice here that Christ didn't just love the church and give himself for it to save us, to make sure that our sins are forgiven, we're on our way to heaven and that's it. No, it was to sanctify us. 
And the word sanctify means to set apart for sacred purposes. And the purpose of God in saving us is more than just us getting to know Him in a personal way. It is to live a life to glorify God. That's the higher purpose. You see, God is calling churches to glorify Him. We've learned that in the book of Ephesians. That we should realize that God has called us together as a group of Christians meeting at this place so that hopefully as we come together and are filled with the Spirit and we allow God to work in all of our lives, we as a body of people can bring glory to God. That as people see what is happening here, they go, that God's a great God. Their God's a great God. I want to know that God. That God's a great and good God. And the same thing is true in marriages, in homes. God's higher purpose for us as married couples and for us in our homes is that we might navigate home life, domestic life, in such a way that it glorifies God. That people can peer into our home life and go, wow, that's the kind of home that God had designed. That's the way a home should be. That's the way a husband should treat his wife. That's the way a wife should treat her husband. That's the way children should react to parents and parents to children. That's the way God designed a home. And the reason why that's so powerful then is you're going to have a lot of people, especially in this day and age, when you find so few homes, even amongst sometimes Christians, that operate according to biblical principles. Because listen, a Christian home is not just a home that's filled with Christians. A Christian home is one that is operating by Christian principles where each and every person is filled with the Spirit. And when that happens, people on the outside are going, how do they do that? Because we certainly aren't doing that in our home. And that's when it opens up the opportunity for us as Christian husbands, wives, children, parents, part of any home unit. Even if you're a single parent here, if you seek to bless the Lord and glorify God, there will be people on the outside going, how do you do that? And that's when it allows us to say, you know what, I don't do this in my own power. I do this by the power of God. Would you like me to talk to you or share with you about how you can know the power of God in your life? That's what he means by sanctifying her. And notice, God calls us to a higher purpose, and the means of calling us to this higher purpose is through the Word of God. That's why Bible studies like the mine are so key, so important in our Christian lives. Because how does God continue to call us to the higher purpose in our lives, to not live for self, to not even live just for, for you know, other things, but to live knowing that every day I should be glorifying God? In fact, God says in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that even for a Christian, even while we're eating and drinking, we should be trying to bring glory to God. That in everything we do, we should seek that higher purpose of glorifying God. And how do I get called to that higher purpose? By the cleansing with the washing of the water by the word. Verse 26. The means is the word of God. The word of God cleans me. It washes me. It filters me. It transforms me. It changes my thinking. It empowers me. It does it all. And that's why I've got to allow the Word of God to saturate my mind, grip my heart, take over my life, in order that I might be always called to that higher purpose. Now, for the sake also of understanding this passage, I want to spend a few minutes tonight on talking about the Jewish marriage relationship. And the reason being is because many passages like this in the Bible and like a lot of the parables and things that Jesus taught are only really understood if you understand the Jewish marriage custom. First, the first thing is there was the proposal by the bridegroom, which hasn't changed very much for the most part. Not that a woman can't propose to a man, but in Jewish custom, it was the proposal by the bridegroom. And can I just say that for thousands of years, Jesus has been proposing that people enter into a relationship with him, and he is calling people, men and women, young people all over this world to be part of his bride. And certainly, like the brides in Jewish culture, they could accept the proposal or they could reject the proposal of their bridegroom, just like people today can accept the proposal of Jesus when he says, come unto me, all ye who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Here I am. I want to have a personal relationship with you, but we can reject 
that offer, that proposal. The second step is that there is an establishment of the covenant of marriage at that point. If a person, if the bride, the Jewish bride, accepted the proposal of the bridegroom, a covenant between those two people was immediately established. Uh, It's what the Gospels calls the betrothal period. Uh, It's what Joseph and Mary were. They were betrothed. They had already entered in. She had already accepted Joseph's proposal. And so they had already, already entered into that covenant of marriage. And the only way then that covenant could be broken is by divorce. That's how, that's how serious that covenant was. And that covenant was established even before the wedding ceremony, even before the wedding was consummated. The covenant was established. But also, very interestingly, before the bridegroom would leave, he would pay a price to the bride's family in order to obtain the bride. Which is a beautiful picture of what our bridegroom did when he came to earth, went to the cross... And shed his blood and paid that ultimate price so that he could have a bride. He paid that price. Very interestingly though, after the Jewish bridegroom pays the price to the bride's family, he leaves. He leaves primarily for one reason. He leaves and they separate for about a year. And that whole year what he does is he prepares this new home for his new bride, while she takes that year to prepare, to gather her possessions together and to prepare herself to be his bride. Sort of what Jesus said when he, after establishing that covenant, he said, let not your heart be troubled to those who were following him. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so just like the Jewish custom of marriage, Jesus now, after coming, proposing, establishing the covenant and the payment of the price, has now left his bride for a while, and he has went to prepare this place when he comes. Now, that separation preparation period is not, again, just for the bridegroom to prepare the place. It's also time for the bride to prepare herself to meet the bridegroom. And that's where we are right now. And that's where verse 27 comes in right now. And verse 26, that this time is a time for us to be sanctified, to be set apart to be preparing ourselves to meet our lovely bridegroom one day when we get to heaven. And after about a year, the bridegroom would bring a procession of his friends and family members, usually many of them holding candles. They would go from wherever his home was to the home of the bride. And she knew about when the bridegroom was coming, but she didn't know exactly when the bridegroom was coming, which also parallels what Jesus said many times when he says, I'm coming back, bride. Be always ready because you don't know exactly when I'm coming. But make sure that you are preparing yourself and that you are ready to meet your bridegroom no matter when I come. Again, very much a parallel to the Jewish marriage custom. Well, after the arrival of the bridegroom, the bridegroom then would take the bride from her home and they would go to a private place and have a pretty private wedding ceremony, after which there would be obviously the consummation of the marriage. In fact, in Jewish marriage custom, very interestingly, the bride and the bridegroom would hide away literally for a period of seven days. It's sort of where I think we in our English world get that whole concept of the honeymoon. You know, you got married and now you go away for a while. Well, long ago, that's exactly the way the Jewish marriage custom was. After the marriage ceremony, after the consummation of the marriage, the bride and the bridegroom would hide away for seven days. Very interestingly, when Jesus comes the arrival of the bridegroom to get his bride and to take his bride back to heaven, guess what? The bridegroom and the bride basically hide away for seven years during what prophecy calls the seven-year tribulation. 
It is after that seven days in Jewish marriage custom that the couple then comes out into public display and they display themselves as the married couple for really the first time together. Very interestingly, at the end of that seven-year tribulation, the Bible says there will be a battle like no other battles that's ever been on the earth. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. At the end of that battle of Armageddon, Jesus Christ will ride out of heaven on a white horse and the armies of heaven will follow him. Those armies of heaven are his bride. You and I will accompany Jesus Christ back to earth. That will be the time that the bridegroom and the bride of Christ are literally publicly displayed before all the world for the very first time in all glory. And after that, then, is all taken place, there is what we call the wedding banquet or celebration. Again, in Anglican world, we usually have what's called a wedding reception after the wedding ceremony. And the Bible talks about this wedding celebration or this wedding banquet. In fact, keep your finger there in the book of Ephesians and go back with me to the book of Revelation, the very last book in the New Testament, to Revelation chapter 19. Notice in Revelation 19, verse 7 and 8, let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory because the wedding celebration or the wedding banquet, or if you want to understand it this way, the wedding reception of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. And you see this separation and preparation period that we are in now. After the bridegroom came, established the covenant with those of us who want to accept His proposal, and now has left us for a time only to come back and retrieve His bride The time that we are living in now called the church age is that time where the bride of Christ is to be making herself ready. We are to be becoming like Christ and and committing our lives to following Christ. Notice verse 8. She was permitted to be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And I believe that you and I who are the saints of God, the children of God, are by our earthly life preparing our own wedding garment. And the wedding garment that we will be wearing that day at the banquet, at the celebration, will be by our own making. It's part of the reward that we get for our service and ministry and living our lives faithfully for the Lord. So if there's a message I could give all of us tonight, whether we're married or whether we're not, this period while our bridegroom is preparing that place, is that there is coming a time where he's coming back to get his bride. But in the meantime, he wants his bride to be making herself ready for his return. One of the questions I think every Christian should ask ourselves every day is, am I ready today to meet Jesus? Or am I involved with a lifestyle and and with things that if Jesus were to come today and find me being a part of, I'd be ashamed if my bridegroom come today. But I want to be living the kind of holy life and, and righteous life. Only again, I can do that by allowing the Spirit of God to fill me that when Jesus Christ comes back, He finds me busy about the Master's business. He finds me faithful rather than being spiritually unfaithful. In fact, before you go back to the book of Ephesians, go back to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. Since I'm on this subject, I'm just going to go there now. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, notice what Paul says here to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 11 verses 2 and 3. He says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, Because I promised you in marriage to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his treachery, your minds may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see, Paul is reminding us that for a Christian, when we accepted Christ as our Savior... I hope that all of us grab the gravity of that, or at least are getting to grab the gravity of that, that in a sense, we pledged ourselves as now Christ's bride to make sure that we are devoted to Him. 
And that we are not spiritually unfaithful while we're here on earth waiting His return. And that we do not allow anyone or anything to take first place in our life because that belongs to Him, our bridegroom, and to no one else. With that said, back to the book of Ephesians. That is why, as Paul continued on in this passage of Scripture, he talks then later here about the oneness of marriage. Beginning in verse 28, In the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own body but feeds it, takes care of it, just as Christ also does the church, for we are members of his body. And throughout all those verses, he's basically just saying, The wife is one with her husband. The husband is one with his wife. They become one in God's eyes. Just like when a Christian enters into a relationship with Christ, we become one with Christ. That's why Jesus told Saul when he met him on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And probably for a second, Saul went, I never persecuted you. I persecuted that guy there and that woman out there and that child over there. I never persecuted you. And Jesus says, if you've done it to them, you've done it to me. Because me and my children are one. We are one. We have been made one by the establishment of that covenant. And we are one with Christ. That's what's so cool about being a Christian. We're one. We are in Christ. We are one. And yet that oneness is also a powerful reminder that we as a Christian, like Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3, should never allow anything or anyone to come between us because we're one. And that same reminder is powerfully brought to every husband and wife who, if you're a Christian husband and wife, you and I, need to make sure throughout our marriage that we never allow anyone or anything to come between us and our spouses because in God's eyes, we are one. We are one. That's why he says in verse 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And it As God instituted marriage, he instituted marriage as the closest possible union that two human beings could ever have. And that no other relationship, I don't care whether it's your father or mother, should come between you and your wife. That there is an established, now hired relationship that has been built through God. And yet many times, the marriages that I work with that struggle many times... They're allowing family members and friends and different people to come between them and their spouse. And God would simply say, anytime you and I as a Christian allow anyone or anything to come between us and our spouses, we are not following the institution of how God designed the marriage relationship to be. There's probably times in all of our lives where, and we're going to see this next week, yes, the Bible tells us to honor our parents. But again, if my parents ever tried to come between me and my wife, I would have had to look them in the eye and go, guys, I respect you, but you've crossed the line. Because now my relationship with Lisa trumps my relationship to you. And parents need to make sure that they stay out of it and don't try to come between them and their spouse's spouses. Because if you do, guess what? You're fighting a battle that God's not going to be a part of. Because he's not going to be part of any battle where anybody or anything tries to come between the oneness that exists between a husband and a wife. Leave and cleave. In fact, the whole reason why God holds marriage to such a high level is because marriage speaks of a greater union. It is the picture, at least it's supposed to be, this beautiful picture of Christ and His church. Notice verse 33 or 32. This mystery is great, but I am actually speaking with reference to Christ and the church. 
You see, and that's what's cool, though. That, that's what gives meaning every day to being a husband and wife and being part of a marriage. Because as a Christian, I should never wake up and go, yeah, God's just calling me to be a husband and father today. It's another day. It's like the 3,000th day I've been a husband and father. It's getting a little old. No, God says, getting old. Do you realize, Jeff, that every day you get up as a Christian husband, as a Christian father, that you have the opportunity that day to impact eternity because you have the opportunity that day to reveal to other people an even higher relationship than the relationship between a husband and wife, and that is the relationship that they should also be seeing in your life and how you relate to each other in the home of how Christ relates to His church and how His church, the bride, should relate to Him as the bridegroom. And that's what gives meaning when we sometimes think, you know, what's your, um, I, I hear it a lot, especially from wives. It's like, I'm just a wife and mother. Just a wife and mother? Could there be any greater calling? Could, could there be any greater impact upon our world down through history than faithful wives and mothers and faithful fathers and, and marriages and, and parents and children and all that? What, what a testimony. In fact, could there be a greater testimony to our world, especially 2008, than for the world to be able to look at what marriage is really supposed to be from God's perspective? How a wife and a husband are really supposed to interact and treat each other? How parents and children are supposed to navigate that whole thing and get along? There could be no more powerful testimony in our world, in our society, in our country than Christian homes established on Christian principles where all the people inside that home are living by the filling of the Spirit. There could be no more powerful testimony. No wonder God says so much about the home in Ephesus. And why he wants us to apply these principles to our lives as well. A Christian home. We need them, guys. And, and I, I don't care if you're here tonight and, and you're not married. Guys, you got a home. You, you're, you're part of a home. It needs to be Christian. It needs to be distinctive. It needs to be called to a higher purpose where people can see that we're not just existing, we're here to glorify God every day and bring glory to Him. And all of us can be encouraging each other in our marriages. That's one of the reasons why my wife and I took this small church on on Sunday mornings. Because I've never met a married couple that said, no, Jeff, we've got enough encouragement. We don't need any. We're, we're good to go. In fact, the couple that doesn't throughout their marriage, I don't care if their marriage is the greatest marriage that has ever been. It, you and I all know from the Bible, if we don't continue to work on our marriages, focus on our marriages, pay attention to our marriages, our marriages at any time, at any time, can slide. I've been a pastor for 24 years. One of the, the biggest differences that I have seen when I first became a pastor back in the early 80s to where we are now is that back then, most of the marriage counseling and, and married couples that I would talk to that were struggling, a lot of them married five years or less, ten years or less. Let's bring it up now. I'm dealing with couples now who've been married 25, 30, 35, 40, 45 years who are deciding it's time to end it. You see, it, it doesn't matter because Satan is not going to let up on his attack on the home. And we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks as well. That's why, again, this passage in its context is so powerful. Because in the very next chapter, Paul reminds us, we need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might because we have a spiritual enemy out there. And one of the places that our spiritual enemy constantly attacks is the home. He tries to come between husbands and wives. He tries to come between parents and children. And we need to, as Christians, wake up. And one of the things that we can do for each other that I think is so powerful is pray for each other. 
So here's what I'm going to ask you folks to do. A little bit different tonight. I know many of you hang around and talk to each other, and I welcome that. I think that is so cool. That's one of the great things about Tuesday night. But could I just ask you, just for tonight's sake, if, if you want to fellowship with somebody or have a conversation or talk to somebody, that you would make sure that you leave the auditorium and take it out to the lobby area or out into the parking lot tonight, because here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to spend the next few moments, for those who want to, and again, I'm, not, not, I'm just asking for every one of us to just stay for a few minutes and to pray for just one marriage. It might be your own marriage. Maybe you're here and you're a married couple and you say, we're just going to take a, a few moments here at the end and we're going to pray for our marriage. But maybe you know of another marriage, a brother, a sister, a mom and dad, I don't know, a friend. You, we probably all know of at least one marriage that's struggling right now that could use some intercession, some prayer, some encouragement. Here's what I'm asking. Let, let's put this message to practice tonight. If for no other reason all of us can be part of taking a few minutes at the end of the mind tonight and just praying right there. And some of you may want to pray by yourselves. Again, some of you may, if you have a husband or wife here, may want to pray together. Some of you may have come with friends and you might just want to gather around. And some of you as a group of friends may say, we know of a marriage that we want to lift up to the Lord. We're going to just take a few moments. And could we just respect each other and just make our auditorium tonight a place for a few moments of prayer, praying for marriages. Because as someone who's been married now for 24 years, can we just say that all marriages need prayer? And there never comes a point where marriages don't need the prayer support of other Christians. And I think it's one of the great privileges that God gives us as other Christians is to pray for each other, especially to pray for our Christian homes and pray for our homes and pray for our marriages. So I'm just asking, I'm not, please, I'm not going to think anything if you just have to get up and go and leave. That's fine, okay? But if you feel impressed with the Holy Spirit to just stay for a few minutes tonight, and I'm not asking you to pray for all the marriages at Cornerstone and all the, I'm just asking you, ask the Holy Spirit to lay one marriage, just one relationship on your heart, and that you would be willing to take that marriage to the Lord tonight and intercede on behalf of that relationship, that marriage, I believe the Lord would embrace this moment tonight because we're showing God we want to honor marriage. And one of the ways we want to do that is we want to pray for marriages. Don't forget also that as you leave, if any of you want to be part of helping our group who goes to Africa with the, the supplies for the orphanage, there will be people out there at that table. It's usually the information table on Sunday they would love for you to stop by and talk to them tonight. And I hope you'll come back next week. Guys, we've got some great stuff to cover in these next three weeks. And I hope you'll hang in there with me and bring somebody with you. We want to finish strong. We don't want this to, to dwindle out at the end of the semester. But we want to finish strong. And so come back next week and bring somebody with you. All right. Let's take a few moments for those that want to stay. And if you want to leave, that's fine, but let's just take a few moments and let's lift up a marriage to the Lord in prayer.